Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Nature, personal sentiment, and modernism on a spiritual, galactic scale. Now, there are three bedfellows one might not expect to walk in on. Yet, in the imaginative works of Bruno Taut, their complementariness played out beyond expectation. While his period of peak creativity in the years just before and after World War I was one of shifting boundaries and definitions, it should be recalled that the time we now consider modernist, a fulfillment of prior industrial trends, was thought to be a radical breakthrough into a new and distinct age. Of course, the truth was broad enough to harbor both perspectives, but those who at the time sought to connect with nature and the personal were prone to emphasize a Gauguin-esque break away from developed modernity, while rationalization and the embrace of the mechanical, coupled with an oppositional stance to nature, underscored a continuity with trends that had begun in the High Middle Ages. Circa 1700, at the height of what historians have agreed to call early modernity, humans were starting to achieve a degree of control over natural processes and cosmic forces that lent them significant confidence. This is the root of the attitude running counter to touts, the rationalized progress we will recognize in the late Grotius or early Corbusier. A material example of this expression is Benjamin Franklin's lightning rods. Because of this new technology, a thunderstorm at sea was no longer perceived as a wrathful act of God to set your mast on fire, but as a spectacle of the powers of electricity. However, not everyone wished to face these natural sublimities head-on. Even as the Age of Enlightenment gained ground, some wilds remained intractable. Historian Stephen Johnson notes that, when nobles traveled through mountainous areas during the Scientific Revolution, they would often ask for blindfolds to be spared the hideous sight of mountains. The asymmetrical, irregular, and jagged peaks were thought to be quite literally unseemly. The irony remained in that these men, the most powerful in their civilization, duly averted their eyes when faced with powers they could neither understand nor appreciate. A century or so later, after science had roundly debated if mountains were born from catastrophic upheaval or gradual formation, 
a very different attitude emerged, with feeling pushing up against the clear light of reason. This reactive undercurrent was more akin to Tout's eventual expressionism and helped shape the romantic and picturesque traditions that he would inherit. Individuals so persuaded would not be blindfolded when traveling. Quite to the contrary, they would gladly go up in the mountains on purpose, with no more reason than to look at them. Johnson says they carried custom-made mirrors with glass that was specially coated and scratched around the edges. This aimed to create the illusion that when these wanderers above the sea of clouds gazed into the mirror, it would be as if they were seeing themselves inside an aged oil painting, in what Johnson has called the first Instagram filter. Although the anecdote is amusing, what strikes us most is not how contemporary optics technology was likewise used for the purposes of entertainment, but how the advanced technology of that time, optical glass production, metallurgy, and early industrial polishing, all products of the rational West, were set to pursue a connection to feeling. People went through great efforts in order to feel certain ways, and design was in service to that need. This is a far cry from the blindfolded nobleman who went out of his way to avoid a feeling. In these two contrasting cases, one finds a deeper context and a longer tradition for a stark, although underexplored, divide in the development of modernist architecture. Tout was on a path of his own. Even a fellow expressionist like Eric Mendelssohn, who designed the famous boot-shaped Einstein Tower, consistently emphasized in drawings what Matthias Schirin calls the dramatic dynamization of the building's forms and functions, a mode of work we're all familiar with today. The difference between Mendelssohn's consistently well-regarded works and flashy magazine architecture or Pritzker bait is a distinction of degree not of breed or method. Schirin goes on to say that Tout, in contrast, made an attempt to condense the conceptual process of empathy and dramatization into an aesthetic system in its own right. So for Tout, the aim was that the final output, a building, should not be a copy from renderings of dramatized form and function. It should stem, instead, from a form language rooted in a dialogue of empathy, or, to put it otherwise, in an ecology of feeling. 
A true step forward for Tout's perspective was that this ecology moved well beyond the domain of humans, insofar as, according to the tradition which he incorporated into his theory, everything in the environment, including animals of course, but also crystals, plants, soil, and even the planets and stars, was a living sentient being. Therefore, a building properly made would be to this environment like a tuning fork struck, setting all about it in vibration. It is in this spirit that, on plate 16 of Alpine architecture, his appeal to the Europeans, Tout calls upon the nations to shape your sacred assets, build, be a thought of your planet, Earth, which wishes to adorn itself through you. Here we have consciously and conceptually recapitulated what was materially and perhaps subconsciously evinced by the romantics who took selfie mirrors to the mountains. The human being, what we acknowledge as the thinking, acting self, has become, through technology, mindfully connected to and part of the broader environment. And the bridges that make this possible are networked lines within the ecology of feeling that an empathetic, living environment presents. At the dawn of the high modernist era, and within Expressionism itself, there was a split in the approach we mentioned between Mendelssohn and Tout the synthesis of form and function that Sullivan had achieved, one grounded in the laws of nature, was now cleaving off into two distinct threads, one that embraced ecological feeling, and another which celebrated mechanical elegance. If Tout's view was correct, if the earth was a living thing that contained mountains and caves which were also living beings, and if these feeling entities wished to adorn themselves with us, then what did that mean? Radically speaking, this obliterated the Kantian subject-object distinction where the senses isolate each individual within a subjective bubble. Tout's perspective replaced this notion with a world of intertwined relationships. What comes into the senses is thus objective, and becomes more so the more broadly it is shared, as we shall examine later. Tout was greatly influenced by the psychophysicist Gustav Theodor Fechner, who paved the way for modern neurology by proposing that 
natural phenomena were triggers for the senses, and therefore connected to cognition in a measurable way, rather than separated from it by the ineffable distance of Kant's noumenon. This reshaping of the self-to-world relation also has profound implications for how nature is perceived and approached. The blindfolded nobleman was living within a worldview where the animated, ensouled self was pitched against an inanimate and soulless nature. To the extent that he had dominion over it, he would enlarge his Garden of Eden by progressively consuming knowledge. He named the animals, and so he had dominion over them, but he shrank from that which he felt was beyond the garden walls, because it was foreign to him, not him, not his, uncontrollable, and, therefore, hostile. Progress meant the expansion of dominion over that wilderness, and, sometimes, over the people within it. This mechanistic and eventually mechanical outlook is exactly what modernist architecture came to praise and spread across the world. But if the new architecture was to be true to the idealism it was born into, if it was to make a true break from these foregone manners of perception, then a different worldview was required. As we have already seen, Sullivan and Wright advanced a nascent form of this new attitude, where growing emergence of form out of a natural context was the engine of architectural creativity. In our episodes on Paul Clay, we examined his painstakingly developed thoughts on this kind of nature study, but under economic and political duress, even the Bauhaus would veer sharply from its first expressionist direction to embrace the mechanistic worldview of the past it was so desperately trying to shed. Tout, however, would hold firm to his own path, taking its logic to unheard-of extremes. All of his imagined grandiose structures of cathedrals in caves, glass spanning the Alps, the earth as an eye, and even a grotto star with floating architecture in outer space, were informed by his perspective on achieving empathetic dialogue with the environment. It is interesting to note that, as absurd as some of his visions seemed, the furthest out have since been apprehended and executed. While we may not yet have mountains decked in crystal shards, 
architecture has been put into orbit via space stations and satellites. But this jump in scale of distance, skipping over the tangible mountains, shows in material terms just how a shift in worldview, in this case from subject-object to ecological network, drastically changes priorities and built outcomes. The sterile Skylab was a far cry from a floating cathedral. When feeling is subsumed by technical achievement, nature is not valued as something to be celebrated or related to, but simply to be used. Tout promotes a different platform altogether. In a panorama on plate 12, showing a reimagined depiction of the countryside and mountains around Glarus, Switzerland, his soft, hand-lettered captions read, Grand is nature, eternally beautiful, an eternal creator, in the atom and in the mountain giant, everything an eternal new creation. We, too, are her atoms and follow her commandment in creating. In actively marveling at her is sentimental. We create in her and with her, and we adorn her. Compare this to Clay's statement that mankind is a creation on the earth and a creation within the whole, that is to say, a creature on one star among stars. Though the palpable sense of the human as co-creator among the powers of nature is present, Tout takes it to a deeper level that is almost sibylline. Not only does he vividly portray the world as being full of recursive consciousness, but what someone like Clay might render as a euphemistic and abstract co-creation with nature, tout shades as intercourse. His conversation with the mountain is a courtship rite. She would like to be adorned, and the human obliges her desire to bedeck her with the jeweled glass that tout depicts, after which comes a celebration. We create in nature and with nature endlessly for the eternal new. This sentiment brings to mind the German folklore in Wagner's Tannhäuser, where the hero starts the story inside the bewitched mountain of Venus, where he is purportedly <clears throat> condemned to 
an eternity of servicing the goddess within the mountain that is within her mountain. This kind of recursion and repetition as essential to sustainable creation in dialogue with a living, desiring environment pervades the whole of Tout's work on alpine architecture. He even takes the subtle step of dividing it into five parts and calling this organization symphonic. Shirin misses the reference and thinks this deliberate illustration of Tout's is a mistake because symphonies, as everyone knows, are not organized on a five-part basis. Even Anton Bruckner used to write them in four movements. Yet he ignores how symphonies are played. Underscoring Tout's premium on dialogue, desire, and empathy, when an audience is truly moved, an encore of the favorite movement is called for. As a matter of tradition, stemming from the first performance of the piece, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony encores the deeply haunting second movement every time it is played. Symphonies have four movements, but the best ones have five. So Tout was not just about crystals and compersion, though this is close to how some of his contemporaries came to see him. The radical inversion of the prevailing subject-world relation that he advocated for already had a prestigious and storied tradition. In his 1920 pamphlet, My Worldview, Tout quoted at length from the aforementioned scientist Fechner, polemically dismantling the Kantian view of time and space. What had been thus far furthered only through philosophy and science was now being set to spring forth in the shape of architecture. Join us. As we dig deeper into Alpine architecture, the modernist emerald tablet, next time on Lapsus Lima.